Okay, well, let's start. So, um, I have a feeling like last week you weren't quite caught up on the reading. Like, not entirely caught up. Um, are you guys caught up now? Is that the... <laughs> you have the tragic nod, which makes me think you're telling the truth. Which is, yep, I spent so much time, and I'm caught up, and what was it all for? Is that sort of the... The eloquent nod. Um, so basically where we should be now, um, because we're delayed by day, um, because I was sick last week, um, is you should have finished the last two cantos of Child Herald, and you should have read Julian and Matalo. Now everyone's read it, which I kind of had the feeling that not everyone had done last time. I had lots of feelings last time. Um, and... Um, you should have, but probably didn't, um, read through all of the letters and other prose stuff at the end of the book. Um, you also probably didn't read Byron's notes for Child Herald, which um, I was... Did you guys read his notes? Okay, I mean, his, he's a great and totally fun and wonderful prose writer. Um, and that's um, part of the reason... I'm real. Part of the reason um, to be reading those letters, part of the reason the letters are in the volume, um, but part of the reason for you to have read through them now, or at least for that to be in the syllabus for now, um, is to start giving you a sense of Byron's range as a personality. Um, so if you were just to read Child Harold, what you would get is the um, sense of the you get the sense of Byron that that is um, that you get in Julian's preface to Julian and Madelow or in Shelley's preface to Julian and Madelow. Um, that is the um, he derives from an apprehension of his own enormous intellect in comparison with the dwarfish or his own enormous gifts in comparison with dwarfish intellects that surround him. An intense apprehension of the nothingness of human life or the lines in Julian and Madelow the sense that he was greater than his kind had struck, methinks, his eagle spirit blind through gazing at his own exceeding light. Um, you would get the Byron as the great and blasted and um, um, utterly um, uh, disappointed, sublimely disappointed, um, disillusioned figure with the way the world is. Um, and the intensity with which he represents himself that way is part of the puzzle about Byron. That is, if you really are, Byron thinks of himself as modeling himself in some ways, you could say, on the Satan of Paradise Lost. But the Satan of Paradise Lost has something that he wants to do, which is to fight, to take revenge, to fight for justice. What the Satan of Paradise Lost is not doing is writing poetry. Um, and even though he's speaking poetry, it's Milton who's writing the poetry for him. And we wouldn't think quite that Milton is expressing himself um, in Satan's words. What Milton is doing is producing this magnificent figure, the figure of Satan. Um, but if Milton felt the way Satan does, he wouldn't be writing Paradise Lost. Um, Paradise Lost is partly a kind of celebration of, um, of rebellious freedom, um, but the figure in Satan's position wouldn't actually himself be writing poetry. 
Byron, you could say, although you didn't read the first two cantos of Child Harold, um, but they're the they're what made him famous. Um, uh, can, can you get the door? Um, Byron um, reflects on this in the last two cantos on the fact that he's kind of dropping Harold as a hero. That is that. Um, People were confusing him with Harold, he says, at the beginning of Canto Three, um, And since they were confusing him with, him with Harold the whole time, um, why not then just stop trying to separate himself from Harold? Um, he didn't think he was the same character as Harold, but since everyone else did, um, why not try to separate himself? Why, why not stop trying to separate himself from Harold and just talk about himself? So the last two of the four cantos of Child Harold is really Byron looking around, traveling, doing a kind of travel journal in verse, an utterly sublime tra travel journal in verse, um, in which he describes um, his own feelings about these various places that he goes, rich in their natural beauty or their sublimity, rich as well in historical association. Um, one figure whom he compares himself to and will have occasion to return to have occasion to return to is Rousseau. Um, so he goes, I don't know if you read the notes. Do people um, remember the section of Canto Three where he talks about Rousseau? He goes to Clarence and he talks about um, all the um, natural landscape where Rousseau um, essentially learned his view of the world. Do people remember this section? Um, so Byron actually has an amazing note about that but what he's talking about is um, partly that he, is, he has gone to a place um, in which Rousseau's great novel Julie is set and um, in one of the notes he describes going to um, if, you, if you read the notes you'll remember this and if not just nod as though you do um, he describes going to a place that has been flattened into a vineyard by um, a monastery that wanted to make some money by selling some wine. So there, was, there had been woods there in the 18th century, um, but now this place has been flattened into a vineyard. Um, this is, if you have the um, Oxford um, Byron, it's... Um, Not actually certain how quickly I'll find it. Um, yeah, this is on page 144 um, of the Oxford Byron, and it's a long note um, to his account of Rousseau. Um, and it's worth looking um, at this note. So towards the end of that note on page 144, um, he says, the hills are covered with vineyards and interspersed with some small but beautiful woods. One of these was named the Bosquet de Julie, and it is remarkable that, though long ago cut down by the brutal selfishness of the monks of Saint Bernard, to whom the land appertained, that the ground might be enclosed into a vineyard for the miserable drones of an execrable superstition. So, despite the fact that this has happened, the inhabitants of Clarence still point out the spot where its trees stood, calling it by the name which consecrated and survived them. 
Um, so what he's saying is here's this, these woods that are called basically the, the wood of Julie. The reason they're called that is because in Rousseau's novel Julie, this fictional character um, and her lover um, spend some time walking through, and her cousin spend some time walking through those woods, and Rousseau, or um, it's actually a novel in letters, so the letter writers who are writing um, about what they're doing describe these beautiful woods and describe how beautiful they are, and a whole lot of Julie is incredible description of landscape um, among the Swiss Alps and around Lake Geneva and so on. So now the people who live there call what is no longer a wood, what has been flattened into just a vineyard with you know, short trees and, and, um, and grass between them. They still call it Julie's wood, even though Julie was fictional and it's not a wood anymore. And that's how powerful um, the presence of Julie is in, in, in the minds, in the culture of uh, people who had read Rousseau. So one reason that I'm pointing this out to you, we may have time, although I suspect not, but we may have time to go back to um, the actual passages where he describes Rousseau. But one reason I'm pointing this out to you is that Rousseau is not only an important figure for Byron, but he's going to be an important figure for Shelley in The Triumph of Life. So in that poem, which is pretty much what we're going to end the course with, The Triumph of Life, um, it's a kind of retelling of Dante, um, only in the broadest sense. That is, it's, a, it's got a Dantesque structure. And those of you who've read The Inferno will know that what happens in The Inferno and in The Purgatorio... Uh, Maria, have you read the whole thing? Is that something you did in school? Uh, some, some parts of it. I mean... Uh, yeah. 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 Um, that as a particular kind of um, rhyme. Yeah, it's Terza it's called, and it's what Shelley will write in as well. And we'll actually look at some point at one of Shelley's translations from the Purgatorio. So what happens at the beginning of the Inferno, um, we'll talk more about this, but just so you know, is that Dante, um, do you mind if I say Dante? Should I say, how would you pronounce it? Dante. You would, okay. Um... <laughs> is find, finds himself lost in a dark wood. Um, and he is puzzled. He, it's the middle of, his, of the journey. He's been on a journey somewhere. He's puzzled. He doesn't know where he is. He's lost in a dark wood. And then some animals block his way forward in various ways. Um, and there's only one place to go, um, which is essentially downward. And there he runs in. As soon as he goes in that direction, he runs into someone who turns out to be the ghost of Virgil. So Dante is, this is set allegedly in 1300. Dante is writing it in something like 1302. He begins to write it. Um, but in 1300, Dante, at the age of 35, that's why it's the middle of his journey. He's halfway through life. Um, is sent, can't go forward, and then meets the ghost of Virgil who has died over 1,300 years earlier. And Virgil introduces himself to Dante and says, I was sent to guide you because you have messed up your life. I have been sent to guide you um, so that you can see what the afterlife is like. Um, 
really a Christmas carol, you can trace a Christmas carol all the way back to Dante. That is the idea that someone is being given a vision or an experience of three different regions, three different ways that life can be. In the Christmas Carol, you all remember, it's what, what are the three ghosts in a Christmas Carol? Yeah. Christmas past, uh, present, and future. Yeah, the ghosts of Christmas past, of Christmas present, and of Christmas future. And the other figure who arrives from the dead to talk to Scrooge is the ghost of Marley, his dead partner. So Virgil, like Marley, talks to um, Dante and um, says, um, and Dante says, you're the poet I, I care about most. I love you more than anyone as a poet. And Virgil says, let me guide you now. And among the people they meet in hell and in purgatory, Virgil guides him to um, <coughs> near the end of purgatory are many other great poets. Um, among the first they meet are Homer, who is in hell along with some other great poets. Um, Shelley will rewrite the structure of this story in The Triumph of Life. By the way, once you've read that poem, that will seem the most pessimistic title you've ever heard, The Triumph of Life. It's not, it sounds like, yay, life! That's not what it is. Um, triumph in the title is triumph the way a Roman triumph, captives are led in a Roman triumph to be um, humiliated in a parade through the streets of Rome before they're executed. Um, so a triumph is actually a ritual of humiliation followed by execution. The triumph of life is life is the conqueror who, is, who has conquered all living beings and we are all led in her triumphal march to our own deaths. That's what that title means. Um, so in the triumph of life, Shelley finds himself um, by a road and he meets a dead person who will now explain to him and guide him um, into an explanation of, of what's happening and what he sees and everything that he sees. Much as Virgil has made this, given a similar explanation to Dante um, and that figure is Rousseau. So Rousseau is to Shelley, Rousseau who died before Shelley was born um, not 1,300 years before, but before Shelley is born, Rousseau is to Shelley what Virgil is to Dante. And um, the presence of Rousseau to both Byron and Shelley is an important one. Um, partly important because we can actually, and not wrongly, substitute without much harm and with a great deal of insight, we can substitute the name of a living person for Rousseau, especially in Shelley, but even in Byron. Um, that is a person still alive and who therefore Shelley and Byron aren't going to out and out treat as though they are dead and their lives were meaningless or ended up being meaningless. Um, the name we can substitute for Rousseau is Wordsworth. Rousseau and Wordsworth had very similar ecstatic apprehensions of landscape and of nature and of what landscape and nature could give them. Um, the same sorts of experience of childhood and of loss. And um, Rousseau and Wordsworth are in a whole lot of ways very similar kinds of writers. In a lot of ways they're different kinds of writers, um, but in a lot of ways they're very similar kinds of writers. 
So going a little bit up on that page, 144, um, Byron says, if Rousseau, this is halfway down the page, um, if Rousseau had never written, not lived, I think that should actually be nor lived, if Rousseau had never written, not lived, the same associations would not less have belonged to such scenes. So even if Rousseau had not lived, the scenes would still be sublime. One would have the same associations of their sublimity. He has added to the interest of his works by their adoption, that is, by describing these scenes. He has added to the interest of his own works by describing the nature around him. He has shown his sense of their beauty by the selection, but they have done that for him which no human being could do for them. So I think that's a crucial sentence, that they have done that for him which no human being could do for them. So the natural world in Child Harold, in Byron's sense of how Child Harold is like Julie, the descriptions of the natural world in Rousseau's novel Julie, the natural world um, adds to the poem when the poem describes it. There's that amazing description, which I hope you're amazed by, of the lightning storm in Child Harold. Um, but what Byron is saying, and what he's saying about Rousseau, and therefore also saying about Wordsworth, who had some resentment about Child Harold when he came out. Remember that Wordsworth is 18 years old than Byron, 18 years older than Byron, and now Byron is writing about nature in a kind of Wordsworthian spirit. Um, the natural world that Byron is describing, he describes as greater than any poet's depiction of that natural world. So there's still the question in Child Harold is why, if nothing can affect you anymore, if you are, if you have derived an intense apprehension of the nothingness of human life, again, to quote Shelley in the preface to Julian and Madelow, um, why write poems? Why tell the world that nothing can affect you anymore? So there's a person, um, a friend of Shelley's and Byron's, um, a writer named Thomas Love Peacock, who um, was um, both a novelist and a political writer and a, and a kind of intellectual historian. Uh, quite, quite a great uh, novelist. And he wrote kind of parody gothics. And in one of them, there's a gothic which is uh, what's called a Romana Clay, that is a novel with real people lightly fictionalized in it under fictional names. Just the way Julian and Madelow, you could say, is a poem a clay. It's a poem with a key. And if you know the key, you would know who's who. Um, he wrote a Romana Clay called Nightmare Abbey, great title. Um, wonderful, hilarious novel in which um, two of the characters are based on Byron and Shelley, and they come to a weekend uh, in Nightmare Abbey. Um, they spend the weekend there. It's kind, of, it's kind of like Downton Abbey, except Nightmare. Um, they spend the weekend there. Um, but then the Byron character says, we have to go, and the Shelley character uh, says, well, okay, I'll go with you. 
And then the Byron character takes his leave of the assembled company, and what Peacock writes is that he says that he tells them that he would remember this weekend with these people with all the pleasure that his lacerated heart was still capable of feeling. Um, so you can feel, you know, this sort of John Malkovich would do a really good Byron. Um, you, can, you can feel this sense of, you know, I am beyond pleasure. My heart is lacerated. Nothing means anything to me anymore. And yet I will remember this with all the pleasure that I'm still capable of feeling. I who have suffered and been more destroyed than any other mortal could suffer or be destroyed. So, you know, he's, he's, he's um, um, preening about his own shatteredness. I am a shattered person, he is saying, and there's something very preening about it. There's a kind of um, rock star, self-destructive rock star, um, Jim Morrison, although Jim Morrison, you know, got... Do people know who Jim Morrison is? That's good. Um, so you know why, Jim, why the band was called The Doors? Does anyone know? Ah, see, everything comes together. It, remember Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell and the Proverbs of Hell? Um, so um, The Doors of Perception is a phrase in one of the Proverbs of Hell, that if only the doors of perception could be cleansed, we would see the truth. Um, and the doors of perception, um, in the 60s, the idea is that what would cleanse them would be various hallucinogenics. Um, they would open the doors of perception for you. So that title, Jim Morrison loved Blake. Um, you know, Patti Smith also loves Blake. Um, and the, the, the band's name, The Doors, was because of that. Um, so, but the Jim Morrison self-destructive rock star, I'm above this all, but I'm still singing to you, even though it's all meaningless to me, look how cool I am. Um, that attitude is Byronic. Um, and the question then is, so if he really feels this way, why is he writing? And as I say, one of the reasons that I wanted you to read those letters is to give you a sense of Byron's range. That is, that if that's all he was, there would be something silly about it because it would bespeak a sort of failure of self-knowledge in, in him. He wouldn't realize. He would think, look how cool I am. But he wouldn't realize that just thinking that made him that much less cool. Um, and again, we compared him to Heathcliff, for example, and the thing is Heathcliff doesn't care whatever how people think about him. One of the things about Wuthering Heights, if you, if you, are, if you find Heathcliff a magnetic or an obsessing personality, a fascinating personality, part of that is he doesn't care whether you do or not. Part of that is that he will be brutal just at the point when you want him to be noble despite himself. Um, you will find brutality in Heathcliff instead. And um, what that means is that he, there's no way Heathcliff would ever write something like Wuthering Heights. The reason, those of you who don't know Wuthering Heights, I hope you'll want to know it now, but the reason that Wuthering Heights is narrated by Lockwood, who is the most anti-Heathcliff character there is, is because the person who tells the story and the person the story is about 
have to be so vastly different. The person the story is about would never tell that story. It wouldn't be consistent with his character. Um, the person who tells the story has to be fascinated. The person the story is about has to not find anything fascinating anymore, especially once Catherine is dead. The only thing that ever fascinated Heathcliff. It's not really a spoiler. You find out Catherine's dead at the very start. Um, so, again, in Paradise Lost, you have Milton writing about Satan. Milton, who, as we saw, comes in in his own voice, as his own person at the beginning of Book 3, when he talks about his own blindness and so on. In Julian and Madelo, you have Julian writing about Madelo. Not Madelo writing about himself, but Julian writing about Madelo. And in Child Harold, you had, you had Byron writing about Harold. But then it becomes Byron writing about Byron. And there, those who are unfriendly to Byron will just see a certain kind of pointless vanity in what he's doing. I mean, it's obviously really great poetry. It's descriptive poetry. It's amazing. Um, but if that's all that had survived of Byron, you might think, so what's the point? But the letters, I hope, and um, some of the poems, some of the shorter lyrics, which are just gorgeous that you've read, um, will give you more of a sense of Byron's range and a sense of his own self-irony. Again, you see that in the preface to Julian and Madelo, when Julian says that although it is his weakness to be proud, this has nothing to do with his human interactions, that there is no one kinder, wittier, and more generous than Madelo. That um, as a social being, um, there's nothing contemptuous about him. Um, that that is, in some sense, his internalized uh, despair about the world. But that in real life, as they say, the question is how important is real life, but in real life, um, he is just um, an utterly wonderful person to spend time with. Now, again, just to say one more thing about Julian and Madelo. I think one of the striking things, should I ask this as a question, then be disappointed by how few of you have read it? Sure. Um, who do you think wins the debate in Julian and Madelo? So remember, do you remember what the debate is? Okay, so it, is, it certainly is about what the importance of life is. Why does Madelow say, come, let's go see the madman? I'll show you something that will um, prove that you're wrong, he says to Julian. Come meet me, and we'll go see this person who Madelow is supporting um, in the asylum um, and who they watch for about half the poem. So why does Madelow do that? Why does he say, let's go see him? This is just a plot question, Muriel. Because he's so mad that, like, they're having this like intellectual debate, but this madman just shows and kind of disrupts their whole crux of their argument. But what is Madelow? For Madelow, he's a piece of evidence. 
Um, do you remember what he's evidence for? Madelow says to Julian, um, I see what you think, and you're wrong. Look, I'm going to prove it. Come with me to meet this person tomorrow. I don't remember that case. Okay, well, basically, it's a debate between optimism and pessimism. So Madelow basically thinks that human life is pointless, that it's awful, that it would be better never to have been born, um, that uh, people are terrible and they oppress each other and they suffer and they die, and um, that, that humanity... Madelow is a misanthrope. Um, he's a misanthrope in the same way that Swift was, which is to say what Swift very famously said, um, that he hated mankind, but he loved Tom, Dick, and Harry. That is to say that it wasn't that he hated people. He, I mean, it's, it wasn't that he hated particular persons. He didn't look at someone and say, God, how hateful you are. Um, he liked people. Whenever he met people, he liked them. But he hated the species. Why? Because the species is a species, you know, we're all, as a species, notable for our cruelty and viciousness and violence and murderous ways. And, and um, who are we cruel and vicious and violent and murderous towards? People. Um, so we're, we're a species that does terrible wrong to individuals, and individuals are all good, and yet as a species, we're an evil species. So that's Swift's famous misanthropy, um, what he called his savage indignation, and that's the same misanthropy that you get in Byron. Um, so he, Byron, thinks that human life is pointless and cruel, and Julian disagrees. Julian thinks that if religion were ended, if religion didn't distort how people thought and felt, if religion didn't produce fanaticism and clannishness and self-righteousness, that without religion, you could have a perfected world. And that's Shelley's hope almost to the very end of his life, perhaps to the very end of his life. But Shelley is a radical optimist about the possibility of human progress. And that's why he writes this pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism that gets him kicked out of Oxford. Atheism is necessary because without atheism you have oppression. Um, but with atheism, you would have freedom. Um, that's why he's writing on behalf of Irish freedom from England at a time when that was regarded as sedition within England. Um, so the debate in Julian and Manilow is a debate between someone who is despairs of the human species and someone who retains his optimism about human possibility um, to the end. And that's the debate that Julian is describing. And he, what he specifically says is that, um, again, at the beginning of Julian and Manilow, he, he describes what their debate is. And it's just so good. The poetry here is so good that it's just worth reading a little more than we actually need to. Um, I rode one evening with Count Manilow Upon the bank of land which breaks the flow of Adria towards Venice, a bare strand of hillocks heaped with ever-shifting sand, matted with thistles and amphibious weeds, 
such as from earth's embrace the salt ooze breeds is this. So he's talking about the, the Lido, the beach called the Lido, which now is like one of the fanciest places in the world, but back then was not. Um, an uninhabitable seaside which the lone fisher, when his nets are dried, abandons. And no other object breaks the waste but one dwarf tree and some few stakes broken and unrepaired, and the tide makes a narrow space of level sand thereon. Where twas our wont to ride while day went down, this ride was my delight. I love all waste and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing what we see is boundless, as we wish our souls to be. So hang on to that, that you look at landscape, and you taste the pleasure of believing what you see is boundless, infinite, goes on forever, as we wish our souls to be, boundless in the same way. So somehow seeing a landscape like this, again, the question that we are, that is obtruding upon us from Wordsworth, I hear the cataracts, um, I hear the echoes from the mountains throng, all those descriptions of nature all over Wordsworth, but that we can use the intimations ode as, as um, our, our touchstone for, or our reference point for. Um, all of those are about the spectacular sublimity of nature and what its relation is to the human soul's sense of itself. Why do we feel free in sublime landscapes? Why does nature fill us with exaltation? What do we think the relation of our soul to nature is? So Byron describes that in Child Harold. Here Shelley is describing it in Julian and Madelow. I love all waste and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing what we see is boundless as we wish our souls to be. And such was this wide ocean and this shore more barren than its billows. And yet more than all, with a remembered friend I love to ride as then I rode. So the best thing is to ride with a friend whom you remember as a friend and who's there with you then. More than all, I love to ride as then I rode with a remembered friend. For the winds drove the living spray along the sunny air into our faces. The blue heavens were bare, stripped to their depths by the awakening north. And from the waves, sound like delight broke forth, harmonizing with solitude and sent into our hearts a real merriment. So as we rode, we talked. And the swift thought, winging itself with laughter, lingered not but flew from brain to brain. Such glee was ours charged with light memories of remembered hours, none slow enough for sadness. So they had a great time riding and talking and cracking jokes with each other and remembering things and just sparkling with the joy of human conversation. This is how we hope you will remember the best times in college. And that's what he's remembering now as a middle-aged man, this one day when they rode. Till we came homeward, which always makes the spirit tame. So their ride was over, it was getting dark, 
the sunset, you're now going to get a description of the sunset that lasts about 100 lines, an amazing description of the sunset. Um, and they returned homeward, till we came homeward, which always makes the spirit tame. This day had been cheerful but cold, and now the sun was sinking and the wind also. Our talk grew somewhat serious, as may be talk interrupted with such raillery as mocks itself, because it cannot scorn the thoughts it would extinguish. So we still were cracking jokes, scorning our own seriousness, but our talk did grow more serious. Twas forlorn yet pleasing, such as once, so poets tell, the devil's held within the dales of hell concerning God, free will, and destiny of all that earth has been or yet may be, all that vain men imagine or believe or hope can paint or suffering may achieve, we descanted, and then the opposition between them. And I, forever still, is it not wise to make the best of ill argued against despondency? But pride made my companion take the darker side. And then they hear the bell ringing in the tower. And if you go now to line 106, the broad sun is sinking behind it. Um, well, let's go back just a touch before that. Um, we're even now at line 93. We're even now at the point I meant, said Madelow, and bade the gondolieri cease to row. Look, Julian, on the west, and listen well if you hear not a deep and heavy bell. I looked and saw between us and the sun a building on an island such a one as age to age might add for uses vile a windowless, deformed and dreary pile, and on the top an open tower where hung a bell which in the radiance swayed and swung. Um, if you guys know the great Browning poem, Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came, or if you know the Stephen King um, 48 volume novelization of the Browning poem. It's not quite 48 volumes yet, but it's getting there. Um, this is probably, it's all coming through Julian and Madelow. This tower here on the island goes to Browning and then goes beyond that. Um, and on the top, this open tower. A windowless, deformed, and dreary pile, and on the top an open tower where hung a bell, which in the radiance swayed and swung. We could just hear its hoarse and iron tongue. Notice, um, since we will notice such things, since Byron and Shelley and Keats are such extraordinary prosodists, are so great at the use of rhyme. Um, Byron will say in Don Juan, um, some poets like blank verse. I'm fond of rhyme. A worker never should quarrel with his tools. So for Byron, which is a proverb, uh, only a bad workman quarrels with his tools. Um, Byron loved rhyming. And um, the use of rhyme, as you will see it in Byron, and we, you haven't seen anything yet, but the use of rhyme, as you will see it in Byron, is amazing. Um, Shelley's use of rhyme is also amazing, although in a different way. But here's just a touch of that. Here, what you get is the church bell is ringing. And how, is, how can you see that happening in the rhymes in this poem? Just look at those lines. 
what's unusual about them. As age to age might add, for you, just start at line 100 and read through, I don't know, line 107, 106. As age to age might add, for use is vile, a windowless, deformed, and dreary pile, and on the top an open tower where hung a bell which in the radiance swayed and swung, we could just hear its hoarse and iron tongue. The broad sun sunk behind it, and it told in strong and black relief what we behold, Madeleine began. So what's happening there? It's a very easy question. I'm not asking a hard question. Marielle, you want to raise your hand? I mean, I'm not entirely That's sure. That's fine. <laughs> um, well, you're not looking at it either, so it's no, going to be a little bit harder. Um, sorry, I can't look. That's um, okay. Yeah, okay, good. Um, the end rhyming is true of everything. The poem is written in couplets. Um, again, you don't notice that because they don't have those 18th century bang, bang, couplet, 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 couplet that 18th century um, closed couplets have. Shelley is writing in open couplets so that the rhyme and the end of some grammatical unit don't get together, don't go together. In closed couplets, you always have heavy punctuation at the end of every line. Here what we have is something like, what we, what we behold shall be the madhouse in its belfry tower, said Madelow. And um, you don't, there's no pause after behold. Whereas in an 18th century Pope or Dryden-esque rhyme, you would have, and here, uh, um, this we behold, period. And then you would hear the rhyme behold and told. The broad sun, <coughs> sun, the broad sun sunk behind it, and it told, period. Um, then Madelow said to me, um, look and behold, period. And you'd really hear the told behold rhymes. But Shelley's writing in open form where the lines jam into the next line. And they do it so rapidly. He's describing what their, what their, what their talk was like, the swift talk um, going from brain to brain and the, the swiftness of their ride. None of it is just we got to go bang. Bang, bang, bang. It's just so rapid. Shelley's style here, that's the word I used last week was urbane. Um, it's just so rapid. It's like it's rhyming by accident. Um, the lines aren't heading towards their rhymes as the way the lines get nailed shut the way they do in heroic couplets. Do people know what I mean by heroic couplets? I mean, I know you do. <laughs> um, but do do others, if you... Th if you does anyone know Pope's essay on criticism, which has, which is very famous? Pope has an essay, a poem called "Essay on Criticism," um, where there's a passage which begins, "But most by numbers judge a poet's song, and smooth or rough with them is right or wrong. In the swift muse, though thousand charms conspire, her voice is all these cheerful fools admire," um, and it just goes on like that. I mean, it's great. It, um, but what you can hear is there's no problem um, hearing where the rhymes are in closed couplets. They really knock you over the head. In this open form, if you don't look down um, and someone reads it to you aloud, you may not even notice it rhymes. Um, and you certainly wouldn't do very well in a kind of psych lab test picking out what the rhymes were in a line. Um, 
even though the rhymes are almost always perfect, um, the lines are so fluid that you're not hearing them. There are poems by Shelley that people don't notice rhyme the first time, even though the rhymes are perfect rhymes. People won't notice that the poems rhyme the first or even the second or third time they read them. There are poems by Browning that are like that also. Um, but what's he doing with the rhymes here in these six lines, these five lines? I think you're on the right track, Muriel, but you don't have it in front of you, so it's harder. The crucial word that I used was couplet. So look at those lines. Are they couplets? Yeah. Well, so there's one that's, that's three. Yeah. It's a triplet there. So we have vile, pile, then hung, swung, tongue, then told, so when the bell is ringing, we get a triple rhyme, as though the rhymes themselves are, t are tolling like the bell. You're hearing the gong, gong, gong of three rhymes in a row. Um, that's not original to Shelley to do something like that. Um, it's something, in fact, that Dryden did a fair amount and Pope did less. Um, Byron revered Dryden. Um, Wordsworth hated them. Um, one of the arguments uh, between, Dry between Byron and Wordsworth um, was what to think about Pope. And it's also an argument between Byron and Keats. Um, and Byron thought anyone who didn't admire Pope was an idiot. And Wordsworth thought anyone who admired Pope had no idea what real poetry was. Um, so it's a really interesting debate. They're both right. That's what I'm going to say about this. They're both right. If you don't, at some point, understand what Wordsworth means about not liking Pope, you won't get what's so great about Wordsworth. But if you don't also understand why Byron thought Pope was so great, you won't get Byron. Um, so at any rate, here you have this. As H to H might add for use as vile, a window is deformed and dreary pile, and on the top an open tower were hung a bell, which in the radiance swayed and swung. We could just hear its hoarse and iron tongue. So. You could just hear the bell there. The broad sun sunk behind it and told in strong and black relief. What we behold shall be the madhouse and its belfry tower, said Manilow. And ever at this hour those who may cross the water hear that bell which calls the maniacs each one from his cell to vespers. So they're hearing the bell tolling vespers, evening prayers. Um, and um, Madelow and Julian are in Venice in just the way that Madelow is describing being in Venice or that Byron is describing being in Venice um, at the very beginning of um, Book Four of Child Harold when he stands by the Bridge of Sighs. Um, so Ma Julian's response to that is, as much skill as need to pray in thanks or hope for their dark lot have they to their stern maker, I replied. So the maniacs are being called, that is the madmen are being called to vespers, and Julian's response is, um, because they're raving, they have no skill in prayer, nor do they have any need to pray. They shouldn't be praying. 
because why would they give thanks or hope to God given the fact that their experience of life is to be insane? So the one thing that makes Julian bitter is religion. The one thing that makes Shelley bitter is religion. So that's Julian's reply, and Madelow's rejoinder is, Oh ho, you talk as in years past, said Madelow. Tis strange men change not. You were ever still among Christ's flock a perilous infidel, a wolf for the meek lambs. If you can't swim, beware of providence. I looked on him, but the gay smile had faded in his eye. So first he teases Julian a little bit, in a kind of scary way. I think what Shelley is doing here is alluding to the fact that unlike most people at the time, at least most Englishmen at the time, Byron could swim. Um, swimming only became... Can all of you swim? Anyone not? Um, you know, there used to be a swim test at Brandeis, which they got rid of about 15 years ago. Um, but you used to not be able to graduate unless you could show you could swim. Um, that goes back. Do, you, do people know about this? You know, there still is one at Harvard. Um, do you know why? Can somebody drowned, and then the people who donated the pool said that they'll donate it as well. They actually donated the library, Widener Library, which is the um, <laughs> library at Harvard, was donated in memory of a guy who drowned on the Titanic. So his family donated the library when. Um, when their son um, drowned in the Titanic with a proviso that no one could graduate Harvard without, without proving they could swim. Um, and that actually, it's one reason that in America so many people can swim. Um, it didn't used to be something people could do, but now it's just part of most people's general safety growing up. So Shelley couldn't swim. This is going to matter when he drowns, which is how he dies at the age of 20. Um, Byron, as you know from the poem that you read, which was about what? How do you know Byron can swim? I mean, tried to do what? He didn't try, he succeeded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He succeeded uh, with Marlowe's pride in uh, every young girl. All right. What Marlowe, yeah. Um, and what actually, it wasn't Marlowe who invented that. Um, so the story of Hero and Leander is that Every night, Leander would, sw <coughs> would swim um, this channel um, called the Hellespont um, between Europe and Asia. Um, and it's a, it's a good swim. And um, Byron and a lieutenant, a British lieutenant, um, decided to try to do it. And they succeeded. Um, so I believe, you know, so there's this medieval story, this um, 12th century story about Hero and Leander, which then um, um, Marlowe wrote a poem about, an amazing poem about. Um, and that crossing that Leander did, but then was eventually drowned doing, um, was a crossing that Byron succeeded in. And he was very proud of that. Um, and you know he was he was a superb athlete, partly because he had a, a club foot or some kind of deformity in his foot, which he compensated for um, by um, extraordinary athletic practice and endeavors. And he was a great swimmer. Shelley couldn't swim, 
Um, there's a story that at one point he fell into a pool and was rescued by a friend of his who could, Trelawney. Um, and Shelley objected. He just sunk right to the bottom and didn't move. Trelawney couldn't believe he wasn't even, um, wasn't even um, flailing, trying to keep himself up. So Trelawney um, saved him, and Shelley said, why did you save me? I was just about to find the, um, the, the truth of the other world. Um, so there's some kind of joke there about the fact that Byron was a superb swimmer and also about how Shelley didn't care to learn to swim. Um, he, could, he couldn't care. He was willing to drown. Um, so it become, And it becomes a little bit uncanny when it turns out that that is how Shelley died. Um, four or five years later. So be, if you can't swim, beware of providence. I looked on him, but the gay smile had faded in his eye. And such, he cried, is our mortality. And this must be the emblem and the sign of what should be eternal and divine. And like that black and dreary bell, the soul hung in a heaven-illumined tower must toll our thoughts and our desires to meet below round the rent heart and pray as madmen do, for what they know not, till the night of death as sunset this strange vision severeth our memory from itself and us from all we sought and yet were baffled. So that's Byron in a nutshell, um, that we're born in a heaven-illumined tower and we ring our bells and our desires and our hopes all meet together and then we die. And it's all for nothingness. And then Julian lightens the tone a little bit with the hilarious, I recall the sense of what he said, although I mar the force of his expression. So he's just written this utterly great Byronic poetry. And then he says, you know, I, I kind of remember what he said, but I'm not putting it as well as he did. Um, so what isn't put as well as Byron actually put it was, and such is our mortality, and this must be the emblem and the sign of what should be eternal and divine, and like that black and dreary bell, the soul hung in a heaven-illumined tower must toll, etc. Um, and um, he then plays with Allegra, with the little girl, um, who is going to be an adult at the end of the poem, and then um, he gets into another argument with Madelow, um, and he says, you could have depressed me, but um, I'm not depressed. Um, and then, because look at your daughter. Um, look how great she is. That's wonderful. That's what we need. And then he says, oh yeah, well I have something to show you. So Julian points out the girl. Madelow says, I have something to show you, and takes him to see the madman. And the madman is just beside himself, an object of pure despair, um, love that's been destroyed. Um, what his lines are are actually lines that Shelley wrote for a poem of his own um, and then decided to put into the mouth of the madman um, while he made himself an observer. Again, as Byron originally meant to be an observer of Child Harold. Um, so they see the madman, and does the madman prove Madelow right or not? That would be the question. 
that I'm asking you. Okay, because he shattered because it was all awful and pointless. Okay, good. Um, so in that sense, it proves Madelow right. Um, he certainly disproves Julian's optimism. And Julian's response, we can see that by his response at the end. You know, the madman goes on for, for hundreds of lines. Um, but then at the end, um, when he ceases, um, go now to around line 511. Despair closes upon him. And then he ceased, and overcome, leant back a while, then rising with a melancholy smile, went to his sofa and lay down and slept a heavy sleep. And in his dream he wept and muttered some familiar name, and we wept without shame in his society. So both Julian and Madelow weep when they see the madman. So what I suggest there is that Madelow's bitterness also doesn't survive the madman's passion. That is, that Madelow knows it finds out, is forced to see that it's too easy simply to curse the world and curse God. That pessimism is itself an escape from the sorrow of human life. That if you have contempt for the sorrow of human life, then what you're doing is turning your back on it. But the madman actually makes them both weep. I think I never was impressed so much. The man who were not, anyone not impressed by the madman, must have lacked a touch of human nature. So Madelow does have that touch of human nature. He's, he's impressed by him as well. Then we lingered not, although our argument was quite forgot, but calling the attendants went to dine at Madelow's. Yet neither cheer nor wine could give us spirits, for we talked of him and nothing else till daylight made stars dim. <clears throat> and then go to the end of that passage around line 540. Um, the colors of his mind seemed yet unworn, for the wild language of his grief was high, such as in measure were called poetry. That is, if it were in poetic meter, we would call his language poetry. And I remember one remark which then Madelow made. He said, and here now is Madelow's theory of poetry, most wretched men are cradled into poetry by wrong. They learn in suffering what they teach in song. So where does poetry come from? comes from suffering. People are cradled, amazing word there, cradled into poetry by wrong. They learn in suffering what they teach in song. Um, Julian can't stay. And we feel that he can't stay, even though he loves Madelow's society, because he's too overwhelmed by what he's learned. He finds an excuse. He goes back to London as Shelley himself never did. Um, 
and then returns, as we saw last week um, in Middle Age. <coughs> so, again, this is partly, I mean, this is partly just because his poetry is so unbelievably great, but it's partly in order to give you a sense of how Byron appears when he's not simply representing himself in Child Harold. Um, that I wanted to give you some sense of his range. Let's go back to Child Harold just for <coughs> a few minutes. Um, all right, just so you, you can see how he thinks of himself as being like Rousseau, this is page 127 of the Oxford, Canto 3, line, um, stanza um, 76, let's say. I uh, started at 75. Um, so this is Byron's version of what Julian has said I love all waste and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing what we see is boundless as we wish our souls to be here we have Byron saying are not the mountains waves and skies a part of me and of my soul as I of them is not the love of these deep in my heart with a pure passion? Should I not contemn all objects if compared with these and stem a tide of suffering rather than forego such feelings for the hard and worldly phlegm of those whose eyes are only turned below, gazing upon the ground with thoughts which dare not glow? So isn't it better to spend my time in nature than with men who are uninterested in the sublime. Then he says, but this is not my theme, and I return to that which is immediate, and require those who find contemplation in the urn to look on one whose dust was once all fire. So now he's talking about Rousseau. He says, let me return to my theme. Think about this dead person, that is contemplation, if you, if you find it contemplative to think about the dead, that is in the urn where ashes are, then think about this dead person, namely Rousseau. But this is not my theme, and I return to that which is immediate and require those who find contemplation in the urn to look on one whose dust was once all fire, a native of the land where I respire the clear air for a while. So he's in Switzerland for a while. A passing guest where he became a being so I'm a passing guest, but he became a being whose desire was to be glorious. T'was a foolish quest, the which to gain and keep, he sacrificed all rest. So again, you should see that Byron, while complaining about, or while, while um, saying that Rousseau is foolish, is also describing himself. He says, I completely get Rousseau. Here, the self-torturing sophist wild Rousseau, the apostle of affliction, he who threw enchantment over passion and from woe wrung overwhelming eloquence, here he first drew the breath which made him wretched. That is, this is where he was born. Here he first drew the breath which made him wretched, yet he knew how to make madness beautiful and cast or erring deeds and thoughts a heavenly hue of words like sunbeams dazzling as they pass the eyes which o'er them shed tears 
unfeelingly and fast. His love was passion's essence. As a tree on fire by lightning with ethereal flame kindled he was and blasted. For to be thus and enamored were in him the same. But his, his was not the love of living dame, nor of the dead who rise upon our dreams, but of ideal beauty, which became in him existence, and were flowing teams along his burning page, distempered though it seems. This, that is, ideal beauty, um, which became existent within him, this breathed itself to life in Julie. This invested her with all that's wild and sweet. This hallowed to the memorable kiss which every morn his fevered lip would greet. He has a note on that. We don't have to um, continue with that. But there you have Byron describing Rousseau and clearly in some sense describing himself. Um, and um, describing the torture of the writer or how that torture Again, um, most wretched men are cradled into poetry by wrong. They learn in suffering what they teach in song. Um, that is the um, uh, where poetry comes from, where Rousseau comes from. Um, okay. Um, let's just look briefly at the start of Canto Three. Now, notice, I guess I, I want to make the following suggestion, that there's some sense in which Canto three also begins with, with um, a description of the birth of his daughter, um, a different daughter. This is um, Ada, uh, but also a daughter of Byron's. Um, I think I want to say that Rousseau appears in Julian and Manlo as, as the madman. That is, um, that the closeness of interest in what Byron is, the Byron of Canto Three of Child Harold, with Manlo and Julian and Manlo is something to notice as well. So go to um, stanza five. Um, of Canto 3 this is page 105 he who grown aged in this world of woe in deeds not years piercing the depths of life so that no wonder waits him nor below can love or sorrow fame ambition strife cut his heart again with the keen knife and silent sharp endurance he can tell so someone who has done all this who is indifferent now, whose heart is too lacerated to feel any pleasure. He can tell why thought seeks refuge in lone caves, yet rife with airy images and shapes which dwell still unimpaired, though old, in the soul's haunted cell. So why, even if you are completely 
disillusioned, shattered, despairing about the meaning of human life, why does the soul, why does thought seek refuge in these sublime places? And he's about to answer that question. Tis to create. You go to the sublimity of nature in order to create. Tis to create, and in creating, live a being more intense that we endow with form our fancy, gaining as we give the life we imagine, even as I do now. So, yeah. Do you think that's influenced by Richard II? Um, say more. Uh, Oh, nice, yeah. He's trying to go mad and imagine He imagines that his mind, that his cell is full of sort of other beings. Yeah, it's creating something. um, Yeah, I've been comparing, I've been considering how how I may compare this prison where I live into the world. Yeah, and then then his thoughts create other thoughts. Yeah. Um, There's certainly something Shakespearean about it. Um, is he explicitly thinking of Richard II? I don't know. Is Richard II somewhere behind it? Yeah, probably. Um, there's tons. Byron will just quote Shakespeare at the drop of a hat. Um, and uh, McGann in the notes here don't flag most of those, but they're everywhere. Um, Shakespearean phrases everywhere. They're just always dancing in Byron's head. Um, mainly from Macbeth and Othello, um, more than from other plays. Um, it's clear that Macbeth and Othello are always on his mind. But from other plays as well, too. So yeah, I think that's, um, I think you're right. Um, Was Emerson influenced by Byron? Um, what part of Emerson are you thinking? Uh, for, for, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Emerson, it's, ultimately this comes from Wordsworth. Um, it's Wordsworth, Wordsworth who describes himself as saying, and I was taught too much, perhaps, to learn the self-sufficing power of solitude. Mm-hmm. And Wordsworth himself thought that all the, all the praises of solitude in Child Harold, Wordsworth felt were practically plagiarized from him, um, which is unfair, but if, you're the, if you are the poet of solitude, which is what Wordsworth thought of himself as being, um, and then other people start writing poetry about how wonderful solitude is. Um, you may feel like, I was alone in solitude, and now there are all these other people. Um, but yeah, Byron was the most famous, far and away the most famous poet of his day. Um, everyone knew him. Everyone read him. And uh, he, was, he was wildly known. Um, Emerson has a somewhat more Wordsworthian temperament. But um, the whole romantic idea of solitude, which runs from Wordsworth through Byron, through Shelley, um, does go then to straight to um, uh, Emerson and Thoreau as well. Um, no Walden Pond without this. Walden Pond would now be drained in a development without this. Um, so here's his theory of poetry. We endow a being more intense, or we endow our form with fancy in order to create a being more intense. And we gain as we give the life we imagine. So by writing poetry, 
We do it in despair, he says, in order to try to find intensity somewhere when we don't find it in the world. That's sort of a version of what it was that Wordsworth is doing in the Intimations Ode. Again, changing the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. But for Byron, it's specifically you do that by writing poetry. Wordsworth didn't say that. Wordsworth treats writing poetry as a way of thinking through such a transformation. <coughs> but Byron explicitly says poetry is what does it. You substitute poetry for nature. You lose the power of the intensity of nature unless you can connect it up with the intensity of poetry. What am I? Nothing. But not so art thou, soul of my thought, with whom I traverse earth, invisible but gazing, as I glow, mixed with thy spirit, blended with thy birth, and feeling still with thee in my crushed feelings dearth. So even though my feelings are crushed, there's this poem, and the poem is full of passion. And when I can put the passion of my own loss into the poem, it can reflect back on me, and I can feel it again, feel still with thee in my crushed feelings dearth. I've lost all my feelings. They've been crushed. I have a dearth of feeling. And yet, when I address my poem and the passion that I put into it, somehow I become passionate again. So here he's describing why he's writing poetry. MJ, is your hand up? Okay. So what we're about to read, I'm going to give you something which is not in uh, the Oxford, um, which is we're just going to look at the first stanza of Don Juan. Don Juan has a long preface. Read it. It's hilarious. Um, and did you read it already? I did. Yeah. Um, and it's an attack on Wordsworth. Very <laughs> much. Um, as is the dedicatory epistle, which, is, which you should also read. That is um, the, the part that begins, Bob Southey, you're a poet, poet laureate. Um, but before that, there's, he quotes Wordsworth on his poem, The Thorn, where he says, you should think of this poem as being um, spoken by a captain who has seen this woman at the thorn all the time. And Byron says, sure, here's what you can think of my poem as, as being by. So Don Juan is clearly far and away without um, any possibility of contradiction Byron's greatest work. Um, some people think that it's the greatest work of English Romanticism. Um, I don't think that's true, but in some moods I do. Um, it's also so different from the Byron you've read so far, at least the poetry you've read so far. So much like the dirtier letters. One of the dirtiest, by the way, is not in this book, but I'm going to bring it in on, um, on uh, whenever we meet again, Friday. Um, but generally, Don Juan is published with this fragment that you can see right under it on the sheet before you. Um, which was found in manuscript um, on the back of the poet's manuscript of Canto One. So I just want to read this aloud to you because it sounds so Byronic for its first half or what we're thinking of as Byronic and then it becomes something else. I would to heaven that I were so much clay as I am blood, bone, marrow, passion, feeling. So what would it mean to be clay? Yeah. 
actually to be dead. It would mean to simply be reduced to your elements, uh, to be dust. You could almost substitute dust for clay. So I would. So you return to the clay from which you're formed. That's the idea of, of that word in this context. I would have that I were so much clay as I am blood, bone, marrow, <coughs> passion, feeling, because at least the past were passed away, and for the future. So that's all the Byron we're used to. I wish I were dead. All this passion, marrow, feeling, it's no good. Because at least the past were passed away. And for the future, parentheses, but I write this reeling, having got drunk exceedingly today so that I seem to stand upon the ceiling. Um, so what's happened? He's very drunk. He's very drunk. So he starts, sits down to write a Byronic poem. I would to heaven. He says, oh, God, I'm so shit-faced. But I write this reeling, having got drunk exceedingly today, so that I seem to stand upon the ceiling. And notice how we go from the rhymes there become funny. We go from feeling to reeling to ceiling, not the series of rhymes we were expecting. Um, but And for the future, I say the future is a serious matter, which is an understatement for someone who's wanted to be so much clay. And for the future, uh, I, I say the future is a serious matter, and so, for God's sake, hawk and soda water. That is, so what future is he worried about now? His hangover. Yes, he thinks that hawk and soda water is going to be the only thing that might make the hangover a little less bad. And that's the serious matter, is, oh my God, I'm going to be so hungover tomorrow. I know you guys don't know, don't know it yet unless you're over 21. But... Um, I'm going to be so hungover tomorrow. The future is a serious matter because I don't want to be hungover. Um, so now what you're going to get in Don Juan, Don Juan has its um, amazing and serious parts, but it is a hilarious poem, and it always gravitates back towards um, funniness. It's written in a form called Atava Rima, which is by no means the same form as the Spenserian stanza that, that Child Harold has written in. Atava Rima is almost always a form that's going to lead to funniness. It was an Italian form that was used for um, um, what, as you will see, Byron himself calls the half-serious rhyme. Um, and Don Juan is just, you will find, totally delightful. Um, it also means each stanza is one line less long. So read both the dedication which wasn't published um, with the poem in Byron's lifetime. Read both the dedication and Canto One of Don Juan for Friday. Um, did you finish Canto One? Not yet. Yeah, okay. Um, and just enjoy it. Um, it's called Don Juan. I mentioned this before, but in case this is, you weren't here when I said it, Don Juan, because Byron insists on rhyming um, the way um, uh, who cares how the Spanish pronounce it, I'm English. Um, uh, on Juan, so we t so Juan rhymes with new one and true one and blue one and so on, um, and it's kind of an in-your-face hilarity about that as well. Okay, enjoy it. I think this is where the fun really begins. Um, everyone loves Don Juan, so we're only reading five of its eighteen. I think it's eighteen books, um, but they're great. And he worked on it till the end of his life. <laughs>